Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 28. This is the word of God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like these, those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of, his, of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that we have, that we can gather and consider your word. May our hearts and minds be open to your word this morning as we consider this great passage and how we can have access to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We live today... In a world plagued by a global pandemic, it's a pandemic caused by a virus. It's a virus that infects and contaminates. It's a virus that leads to death. And the world today is looking for a vaccine of some kind that will prevent the virus from its effects. And there are primarily in the world today two vaccines, maybe a third, but two that people follow, that they pursue, that they think will work. This story is the storyline of the Bible. 
The overarching story of the entire scriptures is that we are living in a global pandemic caused by our sin. And the effect of that virus of sin is death. Death is inevitable for all of us. The Bible's storyline now is a story about a vaccine and how the effects of death, the effects of that virus can be overcome by a great vaccine, something that overcomes a virus that protects us from its negative effects and gives us permanent, eternal life. And that's what the world is looking for today. The vaccines that the world's religions are looking after is first the vaccine of my own merit. You see, the effect of sin is that we're separated from God. That's the real effect of sin. When you think back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God creates. He creates a world in which is, the world is perfect and in which he places Adam and Eve. Sin in Adam and Eve causes God now to be separate from them, so they're cast out of the garden. And now there's a need for vaccine. How can we now have access to God? Adam and Eve lost that access to God because of sin. The story of the Bible is a story about how God now provides a new method, a new way of access to him. Now, all the world's religions are, in some sense, also looking at the same thing. However, they may define God. And we know that that may vary between religions from the Buddhists, which essentially are atheists. There's no real God. But they themselves are looking for a final end, a nirvana. And they look that way, thinking that if I'm good enough on my own merit, I can finally reach a state of nirvana where I'm released from the contamination of this world. And so they're looking for a way to get out of this world. Other religions also look to a person's merit. And it seems only natural that, in some sense, the only way that we can have true access to God is if we do something to earn it. We find a way of making God like us, making God respect us, making God love us. And so people do all sorts of things thinking that they can merit their own salvation and regain access to God. On the other hand, there's a vaccine that Hebrews is all about. It's a vaccine that says that it's not based on your merit, but it's on the merit of what Christ has done for us. That Christ is this great high priest that has access to God, and through Christ as the high priest, we too can have a renewed access to God. Because we know, fundamentally, the whole point of a priest is that the priest gives us access to God. And when the Bible in Hebrews talks about Jesus as our great high priest, it's talking about him in this sense, that he gives us a new pathway, a new way to God himself. And so we see through the book of Hebrews, the story being told and revisited. The story begins in the Old Testament, as we know. It begins with, in the garden with Adam and Eve as God provides a covering for them. It continues on to the time of Abraham, as we know, where God makes a covenant promise to Abraham, and it now finds its fulfillment in Jesus himself, who is our covenant high priest. And so the world is looking for a vaccine. The vaccine we see is Jesus himself. And so Hebrews chapter 7 is really the story of how this works out, what it means for us to look for somebody that can give us this access to God. Now think about what this all means. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. I just want to touch on a few verses to kind of tie together this entire story of the book of Hebrews because it's one story that continues from beginning to end that retells the same points over and over again. And sometimes if we focus on a particular 
batch of verses on each Sunday, we fail to see the forest for the trees. We need to see each tree along the way. So as we go back to 5, verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So first, just get this idea, quite simple. There's a high priest. The high priest is chosen from among men, chosen from the people. So the high priest stands between the people and God. And in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we see a high priest is chosen who will stand on behalf of the nation of Israel, stand between them and God, and through the high priest, as God allows it, there is access to God. So the high priest stands between them and represents them. A high priest is a representative. They stand in your place. You don't have direct access to God. You had to have a high priest. And so this priest does this. And the third thing that verse five, uh, chapter 5 verse 1 says is that his purpose is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so we see in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there's a priest that would offer these sacrifices for sins. Now, when we think about what Hebrews is all about, we see repeatedly it's about access. It's about drawing near to God. So let's just take a look at a few verses along the way that we've seen already, and we will see in coming weeks, which remind us that this is what it's really all about. So first look back to chapter 4. In verse 16, where we read, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see there that the idea is to draw near to the throne of grace. We've talked about that, but that's what God does for us through Christ. He gives us access so we can draw near to the throne of grace where God is. And then take a look now also at chapter 7 and verse 19, which is one of our verses this morning. Chapter 7 and verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so this idea again is made that we draw near to God through this better covenant. And then drop down to verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Again, he says, it's all about drawing near to God. Look over to chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. For those who draw near, they need a better sacrifice. And then look at chapter 10, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whomever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So when we go through Hebrews, keep in mind it's continually about this idea of drawing near to God. Now, the old covenant was all about that. Typically, when we think about the pictures or the metaphors for our salvation, there's several different areas from which in the Gospels or in Paul in the New Testament, there are pictures drawn for us. And the one we most commonly think of is the judicial image. And that's the image of a judge 
in which we stand before, uh, guilty before this judge. And so we now need an advocate for us. And Jesus is our advocate who advocates on our behalf before the great judge. And because of this great advocate, we are now, by the judge, declared to be righteous. And so this we call justification. We are justified or stand before God as one who's declared right or righteous. And so this metaphor is common in our preaching, in our theology, in the way we read scriptures. We think frequently about it in those terms, that we stand before God as one who is justified and righteous. So that's a judicial. The second might be the economic. In the ancient world, there was an economy, and the economy included buying and selling items. It included slavery. And so you could buy and sell slaves. In fact, slaves could themselves buy their own freedom. And so the gospel or the, the New Testament uses this picture of redemption. If a slave was owned by someone or sold in a marketplace, that slave, uh, that slave could be redeemed by somebody that could come along and pay the price. And so redemption is a picture of someone that comes along and pays the price and buys you out of the slave market. Or you can, on your own, buy your own uh, freedom if you were able to earn enough money. And so in the ancient world, they knew well what Paul was talking about when he spoke about redemption. They saw slaves in chains being bound. But then Paul turns that and explains that it's really about freedom. In fact, a lot of our songs talk about freedom. They talk about being set free. And in our music, in our, our thinking, in our theology, in our preaching, we often picture salvation as being that of being set free. And so this economic picture is also there. There's a third metaphor that's used frequently, and that's the, the metaphor of the family, where one is adopted, so we know we can be adopted by God into his family. And so we're adopted into God's family. And then there's the social, the social imagery. Social relationships break down because we sin against one another, we violate norms of society, and we, in some way or another, perhaps, don't like this person or that person. Perhaps it's even within our own family. And so we know that what's needed when that happens is, first, some sort of reconciliation. So reconciliation is used as a metaphor, or a sense of forgiveness. To have reconciliation, we need forgiveness. And so these are all metaphors used to describe what salvation is. And we can pick any one of these and make these predominant in our teaching, in a sermon, or in our music. But one that we often forget is this idea of access to God. And that's what the Old Testament covenant was all about. When we think back to the tabernacle and why it was instituted. If you go back to Exodus, and a few years ago we studied the book of Exodus. And when we did, we saw in the first uh, number of chapters through chapter, well, beginning in 19 through 24, we have the Old Covenant being laid out. The law is given by God. The Ten Commandments and other prescriptions that the Old Covenant required the Israelites to follow. And then chapter 25 starts, and it goes through chapter 40. And in those 16 chapters, there are extensive, minutiae, detailed descriptions of how the Israelites were to build the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was important because they were separated from God and needed access to God. And so God said, build this tabernacle, and when you do, this is how you'll have access to me. And it all began when Moses was on Mount Sinai and had access to God. But now as they're leaving Sinai after escaping Egypt, they're in the desert for 40 years. God says, you need to have access to me. And so the old covenant requires this tabernacle to be built. 
And then it goes on. That's about the year 1450 B.C. And about the year uh, 950, 500 years later, Solomon would build the first great temple. And then a thousand years would pass. There would be a second temple. And in the time of Jesus, that temple in Jerusalem had now basically stood there for a thousand years. And Jews, for 1500 years, had always known the only way to God was through that tabernacle or that temple. Now, the picture of the tabernacle is spatial. It, it's, it's spatial. You see, there is an outer courtyard uh, to which only Gentiles could be. Gentiles had to stay away. But if you were a Jew that's been purified under the law, there was a new courtyard in which you could go. But only certain Jews, certain priests could go into an inner courtyard. And so there was an inner tent within the tabernacle or within the temple uh, complex uh, that a, a proper priest who had been purified, could enter into. And that was called the holy place. But even beyond that, there was a curtain, a veil, which separated their entrance into the holy of holies, the most central place. And that's where God said, I will give you a picture of my presence. And so in the Old Testament, we see this story in Exodus, of, and, and through the uh, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books, God traveling with the Israelites as a cloud by day and a pillow of fire by night so they could see God's presence. No God was with them. And so there is, in this sense, this specialized presence of God. In the New Testament, there is this picture of God being in the temple, but then departing the temple, as we see in the Old Testament prophets, God leaving the temple. And so they're looking for access to God. Now, all of this would end when the temple would be destroyed. No, that's not right. All of this would end when Christ was sacrificed on the cross. Because at that point, Jesus tells us, at that point, Hebrews tells us, there is now this access to God through Christ. And it's all about this access. And so it's spatial. How do you gain access to God? I know just, uh, I think this past week, and I say this, but don't think I watch movies, but I know they had the Oscars. And I know that nobody watched it. But I do know, and that's I hear on news reports that none of you watched it. But I do know there's a story there that they held the Oscars, and the first thing they did was, from the location, to remove the homeless people, to get them out of the way. And then they built great fences around the place where the Oscars would be. And then when the Hollywood stars came, they would drive up in through the fence and only come out on the red carpet when they were dutifully protected from you and me and the homeless people. You have no access to those types of people when they don't want to give you access. Now, I know perhaps some of you have had occasions where you bump into celebrities. I, I know my uh, sister once flew on a plane to Los Angeles sitting next to Johnny Cash, and she always talked about that. That was really cool. Um, I had access. One time I was flying to Virginia where I was in college and uh, flew next to uh, Bill Armstrong, who was Colorado senator at the time, him and his wife. And so I had access to Bill Armstrong for a time and even took his suitcase to his car because I had nothing with me. And I thought it was really cool to have access to power for that moment. It was really neat for a college kid to be able to spend time talking with the U.S. senator from Colorado, who at the time was even considered to be a great prospect for a future president. But if power doesn't want to give you access, if celebrity doesn't want to give you access, then you don't get access. They can build walls, they can build gates, and they can have security that keeps you away. Access needs to be granted. 
And if access is granted by celebrity or by power, as they wish, how much more by God? Now, we think we can just access God any time, but we need to remember that access to God carries a cost. And the access that we have to God carries the cost of Christ's death himself. Now, there's two problems that we can have with our thinking about access to God. On the one hand, we often have such a flippant attitude to access. It's as though we're driving through a a Taco Bell drive-thru issuing our order. This is what I want, God, today. And so we talk about it that way. And I think that's what Ben was talking about moments ago in prayer. It's not about that flippant sort of access to God where we just say, this is what I want, this is what I need. On the other hand, there are perhaps some of us who are so fearful about access to God or so cognizant of our own sin that we don't think we can really access God's presence himself. And so we have this sort of standoffish way about us. And that was the problem that Martin Luther had. He was early in his life so cognizant of his own sin that he knew he could not have access to God. So what do I have to do to earn my access to God? You see, there we get to the the vaccine that doesn't work. Our own merit, access by merit. And it came only when he realized that he could have access to God through the vaccine which comes through Christ. That one thing that gives us access through to, to Christ is our faith. And that's what God does for us. And so we see Hebrews 7 being a description of all of this. Last week we saw in the first 10 verses a story about Melchizedek, an interesting character from Genesis chapter 14 who shows up in the midst of a, a scene where Abraham has now defeated some Babylonian kings. And now Abraham comes and he meets This strange priest named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, a priest. A priest of the Most High God. And Abraham does one thing. He offers tithes. Melchizedek then offers a blessing to Abraham. And so we see these two things showing who's really has priority. It's not Abraham, the Jew's father, but it's Melchizedek. And the third thing we learn about Melchizedek is he has no genealogy in Genesis. It doesn't say he came from uh, this lineage His birth is not described, and his death is not described. And so the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, takes that story and now uses it to illustrate the priesthood that is Jesus. Jesus' priesthood is like that, he says. And that's what we talked about in the first ten verses. Jesus' priesthood is like Melchizedek's in that it's permanent. It had no beginning. It has no end. It's a high priest that's permanent. So let's look now as we begin in verse 11 and continue this story. We see this being laid out for us. First, the old covenant is temporary. The old covenant that God made with the Israelites that established the tabernacle and then the temple was temporary. Temporary for a long time, nearly 1,500 years. And so in the Jewish mind, this is becoming permanent, they would think. I mean, this is all we have. But even in the Old Testament, there's promises of Jeremiah 31, 31 of a new covenant, a new promise. And so there's always this confident hope and expectation that God would one day come with something else. And that we find in Christ. So look at verse 11, and the question is asked. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. And that's something of the rhetorical question that's posed at the beginning. And the question begins, now perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, and it wasn't. 
That's the point. Access to God was granted to the Jews through this temporary institution of the tabernacle. But the question is, now perfection had been attainable. It wasn't perfect. It was temporary, but it wasn't perfect. And that's the point. That's the key thought here. It wasn't perfect. This idea of perfect means something that lasts. Uh, a, a good car is one that lasts for 8, 10, 12 years. A perfect car has not yet been invented, even if you drive a Tesla. It's not yet there. We need something perfect. Jesus is that perfect vehicle into which we can enter that will always be there, that will never uh, run dry. And so the question is uh, about that. So we see, first of all, that it's temporary. In Hebrews chapter 10, and I just want to take a quick look here to show you that this point is going to be reemphasized repeatedly throughout. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law could never do it. The law was always temporary. The law was always imperfect. And so he makes this point here. We'll see it in chapter 9 in a different way. We'll see it in chapter 10 in verse 1. And repeatedly, the law never was enough. Why does he say it repeatedly? Well, because as people would walk out of a sermon, I'm sure, they would hear the message that it's all about faith in Christ. But then they would naturally default back to, it's got to be about my merit. It's got to be about what I do, what I accomplish. And, and so often, we think that same way. We, we think we're following along on something, and then we leave uh, it, we lose the train of thought and we go back to what we thought we knew. It's like someone like me who's following a complicated biological discussion. And as I'm listening to it, I'm following it in some detail. I think I'm understanding it. And then when the lecture is dismissed and I walk out, if somebody came up to me and said, Rick, what did he say? I'd stand there and think, oh, my. I don't know. It went over my head. All I know is this. And to a Jew, they would say, I'm not sure what it's all about, but I do know this. The covenant had been there in the tabernacle, the temple for 1,500 years. It still has to be that way. And so that's why it's repeated again in chapter 10. But we have to be reminded that it was only temporary. So we come back again now. We see the old covenant is temporary. Secondly, in verse 12, beginning in verse 12, we see the new covenant really is new. In verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one to whom or of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And so now he has to reemphasize the fact that this new covenant really is new in this sense. It's not just a change in the old covenant. The old covenant prescribed rules and regulations, and it had a prescription for the priests. The priests were described, if you go to Leviticus chapter 1 to 7, there's a description there of the sacrifices that had to be made. And in chapter 8 and following, uh, 8 and 9, the priests, and in chapter 10, we see the consequences of not being a good priest. So let me just describe briefly, so we understand the, the sacrifices under the old covenant and why the new covenant is so new. 
To a Jew, they knew there were five sacrifices made, uh, prescribed in Leviticus chapters 1 to 7. Now, let me tell you a story, and I hope this story helps you remember what the five sacrifices were. And as the years have passed, I'm not sure I can verify this story is actually true or not. Uh, People may dispute it. But here's a story. Many years ago, Rick was on his way to work, and I had to get out the door and make my way there. And I was a little bit late, and so I told my wife, Deanne, I says, can you quickly make me some oatmeal and so I can have a quick breakfast and get out the door? And as I'm dressing, I come downstairs and find out that she's been distracted from cooking my oatmeal, and so it's now burnt on the stove. And so I kind of am frustrated for a moment, and I walk out the door knowing that she burnt my oatmeal. That's the story. Can you remember that? Here's the five sacrifices of the Old Covenant. There's first the burnt offering, the second's the cereal offering, the third's the peace offering, the fourth is the, uh, the guilt offering, and the fifth is the sin offering. Okay, So those are the five offerings that were made. And so I might say to my wife, Deanne, you burnt my cereal, but I want to make peace with you so that even though I know you're guilty and have sinned against me. <laughs> the burnt offering, the cereal offering, and the peace offering were all about maintaining communion with God. The first three offerings were all about maintaining that relationship with God. The burnt offering was a reminder, and it was a sacrifice where a variety of animals could be sacrificed. And when you did, it reminded you that your material life and all that is life is consecrated to God. The cereal offering or the grain offering was about giving to God your material possessions. And that reminded you that those belong to God as well. And the peace offering had different forms, but they were about maintaining peace with one another and with God. So the first three Old Testament sacrifice offerings were about communion with God, about fellowship with God. Then two more were added that showed us how to reconcile ourselves to God. And they were the sin offering and the guilt offering. The sin offering is one that was offered when you had sinned against God. And so you now took an animal and sacrifice was made where you were saying, God, I know I've sinned against you and this is what I need to do to reestablish this relationship with you. And then the guilt offering is the same thing basically. And so we have these two offerings that reestablish a broken relationship. And as you did, you're reminded that this was a, a consequence of your sin. Now we know the day Yom Kippur, comes in September. The Jews still celebrate that, the Day of Atonement. And that was a day when the priest, the high priest, would go into the holiest of holy place and offer that one sacrifice once each year on behalf of the people. They would place uh, the blood on the, the, the goat and it would be sent out to the desert, a picture that our sin is being carried away from us. Again, you see the spatial sense to it. The old covenant pictures things spatially. He's moving away. The goat, our sin is being carried away from us. As the psalmist says, as far as way as the east is from the west. That's the picture we have, the spatial sense of these sacrifices, these being offered. And so the Jews knew that each of these things required and needed. But then the new covenant comes along and says, all of that's done. Because in Jesus, as our high priest, he serves not only as the one that stands between us and God, but he stands there as the one who himself offers himself and makes himself that final Perfect sacrifice. And so that's the picture we have of this new covenant that shows us that it really is new. Now, if I'm trying to, there's one of two ways we can sell things. Uh, 
one is in a negative sense and the second is in more of a positive sense. In a negative sense, let's talk about cell phones perhaps. Perhaps you're on an Android and I'm an Apple salesman. I could say to you, oh, look at that crummy little Android you have. But let me show you the wonders of the new Apple 12, the Apple iPhone 13 that's coming out. All these great features. And so I can sell it to you by showing you a contrast, emphasizing that yours is wholly inadequate, but mine is so wonderful. On the other hand, if you're also an Apple user, perhaps you've got an Apple uh, 8 or 9 in your hand, I might sell it to you by saying that Apple 8 was great in its time, but you now need the i12. You need the, 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 the Apple 12 phone because it's got so many great free features. Often when we compare the old covenant and the new covenant, we do it in the negative sense, saying it's completely inadequate, completely useless, never of any good. When in fact there was good. I'm sure those of you with Androids can still make phone calls and get texts. But those with Apples have so much better access. But instead of thinking of things so negatively, perhaps we can think of it in a more positive sense. Acknowledge that the old covenant had great value. It did give access, but it wasn't perfect. Perfect comes in the new covenant. And that's what the new covenant's about. That's what Jesus is describing for us. And so we have access to this new covenant. Now we continue on to verses 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now the picture there, it's more evident when another priest arises in the order of Melchizedek. If you want to know how much more evident it is that there's a new covenant, note first there's a new priest, and that's Christ. And there's a new law. The old law is done away with. There's new law under this new covenant. And so it becomes quite evident, this new priest that arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, a complicated way of saying that Jesus is not born of the tribe of Levi. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, chapters 8 and 9, God says to Aaron that you, Aaron, and your descendants will be the priests, and the tribe of Levi will be there to assist you. So uh, all priests were Levites, but not every Levite was a priest. And so it's, it, uh, Jesus was not of Levitical descent. And that would have been an objection that Jews would have first raised. How can Jesus be our high priest? He's of the tribe of Judah. And so he explains that that's the whole point. He's not of the tribe of Levi. That old covenant is gone. It's done away with. Instead, there's a new covenant. Verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a new priest here, and it's Christ. Now, in the early church, in the first century, there was a, a church father about the year 200 named Cyprian. He was from Carthage in North Africa. And he really felt that under the new covenant, we should have priests. He saw the benefits of priests under the old covenant, those particularly blessed religious leaders that could say they had direct access to God. And so Cyprian said, in the new covenant, we should also have priests. And so the early church had to deal with this problem, this controversy, this error, and say, no, Jesus is the one and only high priest. So notice in the old covenant, there were priests plural. In the New Covenant, there's a great high priest, singular, who is Jesus. Uh, and so Cyprian was uh, told, no, we're not going to have multiple priests under the New Covenant. 
but one great high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, verses uh, 18, beginning in 18, we see uh, basically out with the old and in with the new. If the new really is new, then we have to abandon and get rid of the old because it's obsolete. In verse 18, for on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, the old covenant is set aside. It's abandoned. It's now set aside because it's obsolete. When your car breaks down and it's obsolete, you set it aside. You have to do something else. And that's where we're at. Because of its weakness and uselessness. The old covenant had power to grant access to God through the high priest. And it had a certain measure of power to show the Israelites what was required for them to be part of God's covenant. Remember now, in the Old Testament, a person is saved the same way we are in the New Testament. Under the Old Covenant, you demonstrated your faith in God by following the regulations of the law, by doing the prescriptions as prescribed for you. You showed your faith in God, and these sacrifices were a part, an element of that continuing demonstration that I know of my own sin, and I'm exercising faith in God. And so the Old Covenant pointed forward to where Christ was. It looked forward to a coming Redeemer. Today, we're now 2,000 years removed from the coming of Christ, and so we're actually further away from Christ than Moses was at that time. 2,000 years later, we now look backward in time, but we're saved on the same basis. It's the work of Christ as our high priest, the finished work of what Jesus has done, and that's how we are granted this salvation, this justification. And so again, in verse 19, having said that the former commandment is set aside, in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It's a better hope because it's a great access to God. And if you take this idea of a better covenant, you'll see it being developed again in chapter 9. There's this picture of a better hope, a better covenant that comes. In verse 20 through 22, we see this oath. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest by an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This idea of the oath is, in some sense, kind of hard to understand fully. Because we know that whatever God says is true. So how can God now make an oath? To make it more true, to make it more sure, if we know that anything God says is certainly true to come to pass, that God doesn't lie, why would God now need to swear an oath? And I think he does it only for our own benefit to say that everything I say is true, but if you really want to know this, I swear an oath and promise you that Jesus is a perfect final high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He will never end. He is it forever. And so this oath is made by which we know we have this assurance. And it's all about assurance, this better hope. We hope in things. We hope that somebody will save us, that somebody will take care of us. We hope that there's a place for us. But when we don't have a full hope, there's a lack of assurance. And under the old covenant, there was always in the mind of the Israelites this question about whether or not they were truly in the covenant or not. Could God leave them behind? But in the new covenant with Jesus, there's this assurance that's promised. And that's what he's saying here. Jesus is that perfect and final guarantee. We don't have to wonder whether or not 
He's going to be there for us. He is this perfect guarantee. Jesus makes the guarantee of a better covenant. And it's better because within it, we can have assurance that we are his. And so it's about that. Now, if you're here today uh, and you have some question about whether or not you should have assurance that you're saved, there's one of two ways to basically deal with it. One is to say, you first better make sure you are saved. If you're lacking assurance, then the first thing you should do is question whether or not you really are a believer. So check your own heart. Check your own mind and see whether or not you've actually made that moment, that commitment in life to say that Christ is mine, that Christ is my greater path. He is my way. On the other hand, if you know that you're a believer and you're questioning your assurance, maybe it's because you don't have full confidence and faith that Christ really is a better hope that somehow he might let us go in the end, that we may not make it. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews reminds us he is this greater guarantee. Now, verse 23 to 25, we see this emphasis again that Jesus is our high priest and he's permanent. For the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The old priest kept dying. And so there's always a need for new priests, he's saying. But he holds his priesthood, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So because Jesus doesn't die, and this perfect sense is the idea that in the resurrection, he is now alive permanently and doesn't die, there's no need for another priest to follow in his wake. In the Old Testament, there was a high priest, and that high priest would die, and a new high priest would be designated. And for 1,500 years, 15 centuries, new high priests had to be designated. And some were themselves disqualified and evil. It goes on and on. But they were temporary. Jesus is permanent, and that's the point he makes there. He is the permanent high priest, indestructible. Think of the resurrection, death, burial, resurrection. Jesus is alive. What we don't often think is of his ascension. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God to do what? To intercede on our behalf. What's the high priest doing for us? He's interceding on our behalf. Now, in uh, much of Protestant churches, we often don't think of Ascension Sundays. Others, uh, more high churches, uh, think of Ascension Sunday, which this year is coming on May 13. It's a Thursday. Now, if you count 40 days after the resurrection, you think you might get to a Friday, but they count Sunday as the first day, so you end up on a Thursday. Some churches celebrate it on the following Sunday, but Ascension Sunday is something we should think about. Ascension, because that's when Christ became the one who makes advocate between us and God. He stands presently as our high priest, advocating our behalf. He is our high priest. Verse 28 uh, verse 26 to 28, he's not only permanent, but he's perfect. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which, later came, uh, which came later than the law, appoints a son who is made perfect forever. You see the story unfolding here. 
It's all about Jesus who's perfect. There's no need for another priest. There's no need for someone to follow in his wake to take care of our needs. It's all found in Christ. And that's the great message we see in this passage in Hebrews 7. And as we continue on through 8, 9, and 10, there's going to be a repeated picture here of this great high priest that stands forever. The tabernacle was good but temporary. The temple was temporary, but now it's permanent in Christ. When we often think about our salvation, uh, one great passage we might go to is uh, Romans chapter 5. And I'm just going to close with this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, there's this great passage that we often use as a picture of our salvation. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared righteous by God, so we have justification there, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this judicial element pictured there, and we also have this social relationship element. We have peace now with God. Where we were at war with God, we now have peace. But then verse 2, Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We now have access in Christ. And for those who are looking to the vaccine of their own good merit, it's going to fail. It's kind of like imagine yourself having fallen deep into a well, and you're crying out for help in need. I need someone to help me. I can't crawl out of this well. And so along comes somebody with a rope, and they cast the rope down to you, and you grab under the rope, and they begin to pull you up. And as they pull you up, you approach the top of the well, the top where you now see you might be able to escape. And what you find is the rope is beginning to fray. It's beginning to fray. And so you think, I have to do something to get myself out of here. I better start climbing myself and not depend entirely on the rope. And you fear that if the rope frays and breaks, you fall back down into the well, the pit, where you have no escape, no hope of a future. That's how the world sees their efforts at salvation. They need something to grab onto, but they have to work themselves to get there. Where Jesus says, no, it's all on me. I cast down the rope, but I grab you in the bottom, and I pull you out without your effort. That's the vaccine that is the cure for the virus that is our sin, whose consequences is death. But in Christ, with this vaccine, we can have and enjoy a permanent life with him. Will you stand with me as we pray? And our Father, as we come before you this day, we thank you that even though we know we've been contaminated by sin in our own hearts and lives, we know that there is a way with you. And that as we commit ourselves to you, you commit yourself to us fully. And that our salvation is granted by your great mercy. And with that, we can enjoy peace with God.